0: Welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we visit the British Isles for the second time on this show. Our first time, we traveled along Hadrian's Wall at the northern frontier of the Roman Empire. A wall built to keep the Roman legions safe from those wild tribes of the north. Well, this time we cross that frontier and go deep into northern Great Britain to hike first in lowland farmland, then along Loch Lomond, the biggest lake in Great Britain. And finally, you guessed it, get your kilt and your bagpipes ready. We will be traveling through the peat bog moors and wild monroes, of the Scottish highlands on this episode of trails worth hiking we travel the west highland way in scotland hello and welcome to the show everyone don't forget to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com if you have ideas for future episodes. On this episode, we cover the West Highland Way in Scotland. I had a lot of fun putting this episode together. It has a little bit of everything. It's got some history, it's got some background on the natural environment, it's got an interview, it's got field audio from the trip itself on the West Highland Way that my wife and I did with our friends. So as a result, It's a pretty hefty episode, but I think you're going to really enjoy it, so I hope you stick with it. In July 2022, my wife and I hiked the West Highland Way. This is something we had been planning to do for several years, but it got delayed by the pandemic. Our good friends, the Kinsels, Don and Grant Kinsel, you may remember that Don joined me on the Tour de Mont Blanc episode. They came up with the idea to do this hike. It was really something Dawn wanted to do. So as a result, I came to this hike with a complete blank slate, which was great because I didn't have any preconceived notions about what Scotland would be like or about what the West Highland Way would be like. Although I have to admit, I did think a little bit about it being sort of open Highland landscape But that's really all I knew. And it was so much more than that. And we'll talk about that on the show. This was our first international trip since the pandemic. So it was fun for Andy and I to get out for that reason as well. And we had a really great time. Our guest on this episode is Neil Lapping. Neil is the CEO and founder of Max Adventure. Max Adventure is the tour company that we used in 2017 when we hiked the Tour de Mont Blanc. We had a great experience then in 2017, so we used them again for this trip. And again, we had a great experience, and we will definitely use them in the future as well. Neil and I talk about the West Highland Way, but also quite a bit about what Max does, which is to provide self-guided walking and cycling trips in many parts of the world. What's great is that Max was founded in and is based in Glasgow, Scotland, And Neil even lives in Mill Guy, which is the suburb of Glasgow where the trail starts. So Max really grew up around the West Highland Way, even though they provide services all over the world. This is really their home turf. So it's great to be able to talk to Neil about the West Highland Way. After the interview with Neil, I'll fill in the details about the hike itself, including with audio from the four of us, me, Andy, Grant, and Dawn during our trek. So let's start with some history. But to do that, we need to ask a question. What is Scotland? Is it a country? I've been there now. I've studied the history a bit, and I can definitively tell you, I don't know. I can also tell you it depends on who you ask. It is certainly part of the United Kingdom, so it is not an independent country or at least not yet, and at least not at this time. Not only is it part of the UK, but for the late Queen Elizabeth II, it was an integral part of her life. She spent the last days of her life and died at Balmoral, her estate in Scotland near Aberdeen. A movement for independence is very much alive, and another referendum on this issue is coming soon. So is it a country? Maybe, though not an independent one at the moment. It's certainly more than just a region at the north end of the island of Great Britain. It has its own culture, as we all know. It even has its own World Cup team, as do England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Strangely, the UK does not have its own combined World Cup team. So maybe it's a country, maybe it isn't. This is not just a technical question or an academic debate. It goes to the heart of who the Scots are. So I come to this, as I said a few minutes ago, not having known very much about Scotland before I got there. Like most Americans, my only knowledge of Scottish history before this trip came from Braveheart, a movie made by and starring an Australian of mostly Irish descent. Though it did not take long while in Scotland to learn that a few figures in particular loom large in Scottish history. Some of these figures are heroic and others are tragic. But their stories still shed a lot of light on Scottish identity today, I think. So I want to go through some of this history because I think it really illustrates what Scotland is and how Scots may see the world. The first character I want to discuss is Robert the Bruce. I joked about Braveheart, which was about a revolt by the Scots led by William Wallace, but Wallace's downfall is where Robert the Bruce's story begins. Robert took part in Wallace's revolt, but later gave in to King Edward I of England and essentially allied himself with the king for a period of time. But that changed in 1306 when he took the Scottish throne, which was a title he had inherited. At the time, he was involved in the murder of a rival, which precipitated his break with Edward and the seizing of the Scottish throne. Now, Robert becoming the King of Scotland led to war with England, and this was the beginning of the Scottish Wars of Independence. His early reign did not go well. He suffered early defeats in battle. In June 1306, at the Battle of Methven, And I apologize for my pronunciation of Scottish names and locations. I had a hard time with that while in Scotland, and I'll probably have a hard time of it here. So apologies in advance. At Methven, Robert and his army were caught unprepared in their camp at night, and they had to retreat to the west. But going to the west, they ran into the Clan MacDougall at Tindrum. Clan MacDougall had about a thousand soldiers, and they were opposed to Robert as king at the time robert the bruce had a small army of about 3 to 500 people and that included everyone not just people who were of fighting capabilities so this resulted in the battle of dailry which in gallic means the king's field robert was defeated and had to retreat again and he hid the weapons that he and his men had when they were retreating in a pond near the battlefield Both the field and the pond are along the West Highland Way. And there's a plaque that marks the battlefield and the pond. And so this was something that I actually learned about during the hike and looked up afterward and hadn't known about before the hike and learned about it by going to the actual spot where it happened. After these two losses, Robert became a fugitive for quite a while. But eventually he gathered forces and turned the tide And in 1309, at the Battle of Pass of Brander, he defeated the MacDougals, which ended the civil war and the internal rivalries against Robert. And after that, he turned his efforts toward the English, and he started retaking Scottish castles from the English. Eventually, King Edward II, the son of King Edward I, who Robert the Bruce had been dealing with before, invaded Scotland. The English had 25,000 soldiers and 2,000 horses. It was the largest invasion of Scotland ever by the English. Robert the Bruce had 6,000 soldiers. And in June 1314, they fought the Battle of Bannockburn. The battle lasted two days. And though the Scots were heavily outnumbered, somehow they won. And King Edward fled. This is the most celebrated victory in Scottish history. And Robert the Bruce went on to reign until 1329. And today he is still regarded as a national hero for having achieved Scotland's independence, which is now almost 700 years ago. A side note on this, the Netflix movie Outlaw King, starring Chris Pine, who was Captain Kirk from the uh, Star Trek reboot, as Robert the Bruce details... Robert's life and these events, with the battle, of course, being an important part of that. So, if you want to see this period in history come to life, I recommend Outlaw King on Netflix. So, now Robert the Bruce has achieved independence for Scotland, but of course, that is not the end of the story. And that brings us to our second figure, who is Mary, Queen of Scots in the 16th century. Mary inherited the throne of Scotland at six days old in December 1542, when her father, King James V, died. Notably, she was also known as Mary Stuart and was also the great-niece of King Henry VII of England. A little foreshadowing there for the story. So Scotland was governed by regents during her childhood, and she was actually raised in France and she married into French royalty. But her young husband quickly died, and she returned to Scotland. She was Catholic, and the Scots had recently become Protestant, so that created quite a bit of tension. In 1565, she married her half-cousin Henry Stuart, known as Lord Darnley. And in June 1566, they had a son named James. A year later, Lord Darnley was murdered. And then she married the person who, it turns out, was his likely killer. Darnley, in movies, has been portrayed as an abusive drunk, but who knows. More importantly, though, Darnley had been jealous of Mary's secretary, who was very close to her. And in a conspiracy, had the secretary killed. So maybe he had it coming when he was murdered. Or as Clint Eastwood said in The Unforgiven, we all have it coming. But I digress. So after that, Lord Darnley is out of the picture, but his son, James, is still there. And eventually, there's an uprising against Mary, and she is imprisoned. As I mentioned, there was quite a bit of tension over the differences in religion. Eventually, she fled to seek help from her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I of England. But Elizabeth saw her as a threat, because Mary had made clear to Elizabeth that she thought she had a claim to the English throne as well. So Queen Elizabeth had Mary imprisoned. And this went on for 18 years. And eventually, Elizabeth had Mary, Queen of Scots, beheaded in 1567. Little side note here, Elizabeth's own mother, Anne Boleyn, had been beheaded by her father, Henry VIII. And yet, Elizabeth eventually came to power... Uh, So a little foreshadowing there, too, and maybe Elizabeth should have known that beheading Mary wasn't going to uh, end the problem for her. In any event, why does all this matter to our story about Scottish independence? We all know, if we've watched popular movies, that Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, never marries and dies without an heir. So Mary's son with Lord Darnley, James, is not only the king of Scotland when Mary is beheaded. But as the great-great-grandson of Henry VII, King of England, and Lord of Ireland, he is also potentially the heir to both of those thrones. So in 1603, when Elizabeth dies childless, King James VI of Scotland also becomes King James I of England and Lord of Ireland. After taking all three titles, he moves to England. I don't know, maybe for the better weather? and only returns once to Scotland in the rest of his reign. He was king of Scotland for more than 57 years, and for 22 of those years he was king of England and Ireland as well. Side note again, one thing that James is famous for is his commissioning the translation of the Bible into English, which brought us the King James Version that so many people still read. So at the end of this, Scotland was no longer independent, But in a counterintuitive twist, it was because Scotland's king also became the king of England, joining the two countries again. In fact, the Union Jack, the UK's flag today, dates back to an earlier version of it created in 1606 under King James. And the flag was actually a combination of St. George's Cross, which is a red cross on a white background, and St. Andrew's Cross a white X-shaped cross on a blue background. And Great Britain's flag today still has both crosses, plus the additional red X-shaped cross of St. Patrick for Northern Ireland. Wales didn't get a cross on the flag for some reason, but maybe that's another story. In any event, the flag that we all know as the UK's flag today is predominantly showing the combination of Scotland and England. So we've gone from a national hero of independence to two monarchs who actually joined Scotland and England the other direction, from Scotland. But that's not the end of the story either. That leads us to good old Bonnie Prince Charlie, the tragic figure that once again resulted in a major change in Scotland's relationship with England. In 1688, the Dutch William of Orange invaded England and dethroned the House of Stuart. He became William III of England and William II of Scotland, along with his wife, Mary. For Americans, there's an interesting side note here. In 1693, they founded William and Mary College, which is the second oldest university in the United States in what was then an English colony, but is today Williamsburg, Virginia. In any event, back to Bonnie Prince Charlie. Charles Edward Stuart was born in 1720 as part of the court in exile. Stuart supporters, by the way, were known as Jacobites, and that's because Jacobus is the Latin name for James. So this meant that they supported King James and the Stuart line that had been deposed by William of Orange. So Bonny Prince Charlie, who was living in France, met with the Jacobites and planned to take back the throne. And in 1745, he goes to Scotland to raise a Jacobite army. And they actually had some early success. And eventually they even took Edinburgh, Scotland's capital, and Charlie actually held court at Holyrood House, the royal palace that is still there and that my wife Andy and I visited when we were in Scotland. And by late 1745, Charlie and the Jacobites were pushing into England. But eventually they ran out of steam and had to retreat back to Scotland. But the English pursued them. In April 1746, they caught up with them at the Battle of Culloden near Inverness. And the Jacobites, who were primarily Scottish Highlanders, were badly defeated in less than an hour. It was basically a complete massacre. And this was the last pitched battle on British soil. There hasn't been one since. Charles fled and he hid among the locals and eventually left Scotland. He later lived in France and then Rome and drank too much. And didn't do much else of importance. So it was a major failure, but this was not just a romantic story of failure. It had real repercussions for Scotland, particularly in the Scottish Highlands. It basically resulted in Scotland's forced integration with the rest of the UK. It ended the feudal clan system that ruled the Highlands and stripped the clans of their land. And this was known as the Highland Clearances. Small villages and farms were cleared by relocation and later eviction, and it's resulted in large sheep holdings that have changed the Highlands character. The English even banned the wearing of tartan, which is the patterned fabric that kilts are made from, and this resulted also in a lot of Scottish emigration to the Americas and changed the character of the Scottish Highlands, and now that I think about it, probably changed the character of the Americas as well. So today, the Scottish independence movement still exists, though Scotland, as I said, is part of the UK. In 2014, there was a referendum that lost where 55% of Scots voted against independence. Though in light of Brexit, since then, they are planning another referendum in the near future. But it's not clear if the UK government will support the legitimacy of any result coming out of that, or I should say of any result having any effect. At the end of the day, independence is still a live issue for Scots and Scotland. Robert the Bruce, Mary Queen of Scots, and Bonnie Prince Charlie are all still part of an ongoing story of Scotland's identity as both being a part of and apart from the UK. So I hope you enjoyed that little bit of history. And now let's talk about the Scottish Highlands. This trail is called the West Highland Way, but what are the Highlands? In the interview I have with Neil, he helped me answer this question, but I think it's worth giving some context here. First of all, it's a culturally and historically distinct region. The Highlands are traditionally the Gaelic-speaking part of Scotland, which is a language closer to the language spoken by the Irish, though it is mostly spoken in the West Hebrides today, which are the islands On the western part of Scotland. I have to say that as an American, the Highlands felt to me like the Wild West. They're open, sparsely populated, rugged, and they create a source of identity for many more Scots than just those that live there. The things that we think of as quintessentially Scottish, like kilts and bagpipes, are really a part of Highland culture, Again, it's like you might find cowboy culture in some big American cities, not just on the actual open range of Nevada or Wyoming. The Highlands were for centuries dominated by feudal clans until after Culloden. Today, there's, there's a major sheep industry, there's Highland whiskies, and tourism that are all important to the Highlands. And they're very sparsely populated compared to the rest of Scotland. I think I mentioned this in my conversation with Neil, but I think Scottish, the Scottish population overall is a, a bit over 5 million, and I think only a few hundred thousand are in the Highlands, even though it makes up a huge percentage of the area of Scotland. As Neil points out, there's also a physical distinction, not just a cultural one, that marks the Highlands, and that's the Highland Boundary Fault. It's a geologic fault line that cuts across Scotland in a sort of southwest and northeast direction. From my experience in hiking the West Highland Way, I can give you a little bit on how it felt for me to move from the lowlands to the highlands, because that's the way the West Highland Way works. You start in the lowlands, which are more populated, sort of hilly farmland. And then eventually you get to the highlands, which are more open moorland with valleys and mountains and the Highlands, geographically, are in the more northern and western part of Scotland. And conversely, the lowlands are more in the south and the east. The Highlands certainly have more hills and higher hills than the rest of Scotland. There are what they call Monroes, which are peaks over 3,000 feet high or about 915 meters high. They're called Munros because Sir Hugh Munro made a list of all of them. The current list has 282 Monroes and also 227 Monroe Tops, which are also peaks over 3,000 feet, but considered too close to another Monroe to be a distinctly separate Monroe. And notably, all of the Monroes in Scotland, so all the peaks over 3,000 feet high, are in the Highlands. So that gives you a distinction geographically and geologically as to how hilly the Highlands are compared to the rest of Scotland. By the way, if you have a peak over 3,000 feet in another part of Great Britain, such as England or Wales, they're called Firths, not Monroe's. Why, I don't know exactly. Climbing Monroe's or Munro Bagging, is a national Scottish pastime, practically. They're almost all non-technical to climb, which allows a lot of people to attempt them. Ben Nevis is the tallest Munro, and also the tallest peak in Great Britain. It's at 4,413 feet high, which is about 1,345 meters. And it's at the very end of the West Highland Way. As I mentioned, the hike starts in lowland farmland. Then it moves through the rocky forested shores of Loch Lomond, the largest lake in Great Britain by surface area. And eventually it ends up in the highland moors and among those Monroes. Moors are areas with low growing, scrubby vegetation. In Scotland, that means lots of heather, which is a low-growing evergreen shrub that has spear-like bunches of purple flowers. And it's really amazing when you walk among the heather because there can be whole hillsides lit up in purple from the flowers, and it's really beautiful. For the most part, the moors don't have much forest, and they don't have any crops. There's very high rainfall in this area. It has a very acidic soil. And this results in peat bogs, Peat is a composition of partially decomposed vegetation that becomes part of the soil, essentially, and it's a very gradual decomposition under low, in a low-oxygen environment. The peat bogs absorb carbon from the atmosphere and lock it up in the soil, so they're good to counteract climate change. Peatlands take thousands of years to form. They're also a major source of drinking water in the U.K., Water going through the peat bogs acts as a natural filter for the water. Peat was historically burned as a source of energy after being cut out of the soil and dried in the sun. And most famously, peat is burned to dry malted barley to make Highland whiskey, which is why people say that certain Scotch whiskey tastes peaty, which means that it has a distinct smoky aroma and taste that comes from the peat, the degree of which depends on the distillery. Some people love the peat and some people hate it. I'm not a whiskey drinker anymore, sadly, but back when I was, I used to actually like a decent amount of peat, but not too much. And I think there's probably a lot of people that fall into that category where they think a little bit of smokiness can be a nice added flavor, but when it's really heavy, it has sort of a phenolic, almost medicinal taste. It's estimated that 80% of Scotland's peat bogs are environmentally degraded in some way. Uh, which creates some risk for the environment in the future. Moors themselves are only partially natural. The vegetation that's growing there, this heather and other shrubs, are basically forest underbrush. And eventually the area would be reforested if it wasn't periodically burned by humans. So these moorlands are a result of human activity. More lands are shrinking in Scotland due to a variety of factors, including cultivation of crops, intentional reforestation, and even just neglect because of the burning required to keep down the shrubs and trees. One thing that is really apparent when you hike the West Highland Way are tree plantations. And that was something I hadn't expected to see and didn't understand until I looked into it. After the retreat of the Ice Age 11,000 years ago, vegetation took hold, and by 6,000 years ago, Scotland was heavily forested. The Scots pine, which forms a what's called the Caledonian forest, is the primary native conifer species. Caledonia is the Roman name for Scotland. But after that period of forestation, farming arrived, and later a period of cold, wet weather that formed peat bogs. And more people meant more harvesting of trees for fuel, houses, and even shipbuilding. And the forests of Scotland declined and declined all the way up until the World Wars. After World War I, there was a really high need for timber to rebuild. And so they started planting Sitka spruce, a tree that's native to Alaska, in plantations around Scotland in the Highlands. Today, only 1% of the original Caledonian pine forest in Scotland remains. The current plantations of trees are really a patchwork, and they don't support much wildlife. Overgrazing prevents reforestation, though there are reforestation efforts underway. My take, after having seen the landscape, is the forests that I saw were still mostly plantations. And there is definitely clear cutting. We went through one clear cutting section. So essentially, I think it's something like after 45 years, they harvest each of those groves. But when they harvest them, they cut the entire grove down and it leaves a pretty scarred looking environment. When you walk by or through the plantation forest, they feel pretty dark and empty. There's not a feeling of life in them. And the trees are planted very close together and clearly are planted in rows. We did walk through some stands of newer forests that had a more natural feel, and there were some signs explaining that these were areas of reforestation. But those are, are much younger trees and smaller trees, but it was good to see that that was happening as well. As far as fauna in the highlands, there is red grouse, red deer, rabbits and hare. There's feral goats. The domestic animals are what really dominate, though. Sheep have been in Scotland for more than 6,000 years. Blackface and Cheviot are the most common breeds. And in the Highlands, there are millions more sheep than people. Another interesting domestic animal that you see there is the Scottish Highland cattle. Highland cattle has a sort of rusty color with horns, even on the cows, and really shaggy coats to withstand cold, wet weather. Highland cows have been there since Neolithic times, about 4,000 years ago. This brings us to the, for me, most interesting and strange part of the Scottish wildlife story or Scottish animal story, or at least of Highland fauna. And that is the midges. What is a Highland midge? A Highland midge is a tiny, flying, biting insect. It basically looks like a tiny little gnat. But it bites. They're related to noceums of the Americas. And I should clarify there are large horseflies in the highlands that bite also. And my wife, Andy, got bit by one of those. And those bites hurt. I think some people mistake those for midges. Those are not midges. The midges are very, very tiny gnats. And the horseflies don't come in swarms the way the midges do. The midges are tiny, maybe two to three millimeters each. They swarm. Uh, So once a few of them find you, others will follow. Like mosquitoes, it's the females that bite. And they need to fill their abdomen with blood to lay their eggs. Unlike mosquitoes that have a proboscis, the female midges have a saw-like jaw that does the biting that's really cutting more than biting. If unnoticed, they will feed on you for three to four minutes. Like with other insect bites, some people have a much stronger reaction to the bites than others. And some people also get less bites. And there has been actually research showing that this is really the case. Some people just don't get bit as much for whatever reason. Maybe it's the some aroma coming from their body that is different than from other people. The Western Highlands is their primary habitat. So the West Highland Way is ground zero. And midges love damp, boggy areas which is a good portion of this hike. (laughs) They are at their worst in the summer, which is when you are likely to be there. Cloudy wet weather brings out the most midges and dry cloudless days, which are pretty rare in Scotland, have fewer midges. Any significant wind helps a lot to keep them at bay. The beginning and the end of the day are the worst for midges. You can actually check a midge forecast online to see what the midge situation is going to be in the area you're in. And for us, it became sort of a a joke where if you asked about the weather, you would say, well, it looks like it's going to rain today and it looks like it'll be pretty midgy too. So it almost becomes part of the weather forecast, quite literally. To prevent midges, you can put on headnets. You can put on long sleeve pants and shirts, which I always do when I hike anyway. You can also use DEET, which works like it does for other insects. Or you can use a, a local product called Smidge that doesn't use DEET and seems to work pretty well too. I basically, like I said, just wear long sleeve pants and shirts, bring a head net, which I didn't use very much, to be honest. I used it a little bit. A bigger solution is just to keep moving. They're not very fast. And if you're going to take a break to sit down and have a snack or lunch, take a break where there's a little breeze or when there's a break in the clouds and there's some sunshine. And another thing, obviously, that made the mid situation much less of an issue for us is that we stayed in guest houses and small bed and breakfast hotels. So once you're inside, obviously, they're not a problem. We saw a lot of people camping along the route. And if you are camping on this hike, the midges are going to be a serious problem for you at times. So there you have it. The midges are a real thing. The Highland midges. But they can be dealt with. The bites are, they sting a little bit. It does feel like a pinprick kind of. And, you know, you notice them when they happen or maybe just after they happen. But for me, I didn't get a ton of them and they didn't last all that long. So maybe I'm one of those luckier people that doesn't get bit as much. Andy, my wife, she got bit quite a bit by midges and they were more of a problem for her. But at the end of the day, with the way we did this, staying in guest houses, eating in restaurants, that kind of thing, uh, it really cut down on the problem. And as long as you keep moving while you're walking, it's not really an issue. I'd like to talk for a moment about the fact that a good chunk of this hike in the middle of it goes through Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park. As I said, the hike starts in the lowlands and ends up in the highlands, but right smack in the middle of that is Loch Lomond in this national park. There was lots of car camping along the lake because the lake is really not that far of a drive from major population centers like Glasgow and Edinburgh. So a lot of people were there enjoying the summer, and um, it really seemed like a nice place and a nice national park beyond just as a place to go hiking on the West Island Way. It was established in 2002, though the area that the park is now in has been protected in some form or another since 1945, right after World War II, And there were these evolving forms of protection over time that eventually led to the establishment of a national park. The trail itself, the West Highland Way, is the first official long-distance footpath in Scotland. It was conceived in the 1960s by Tom Hunter of Glasgow, but it took all the way until 1980 to be officially finished and opened. Today, it is a very popular trail. 36,000 people walk the entire route every year. The trail essentially goes from Scotland's biggest city, Glasgow, to its tallest mountain, Ben Nevis, by way of its largest lake, Loch Lomond. The trail follows old drover roads. Drover is the, the Scottish equivalent word for cowboy. So they're old cattle roads and also some old military roads that were built during the Jacobite uprising periods that I talked about earlier. And those roads have been utilized as well as part of the trail. So you're definitely walking through history as you hike the trail. All right, with that background, let's jump to my conversation with Neil Lapping of Max Adventure about his company and about the West Highland Way. And then after that, we'll come back and I will walk through the logistics and step-by-step of our hike on the West Highland Way. Here's my conversation with Neil Lapping. Neil Lapping, CEO and founder of Max Adventure. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here.
1: It's great to be here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me along. Sure. So let's start at the beginning.
0: How did you end up in this business? How did you come to found a walking and cycling tour company?
1: It's a good question. Who knows? So I grew up in South Africa and pretty much in the outdoors on a farm for much of my teenage years. And after four fairly unproductive years studying business in Cape Town, my mom brought me a one-way ticket to London to make something of myself. And I spent the next five years doing very little, but spending a lot of time teaching water sports, traveling, and eventually I found myself in Alapool thanks to a girl. And as I was in Alapool, I spent five amazing years travelling around the world and having amazing experiences in the outdoors. And I saw all these visitors to Allapool, which is a tiny town up in the far northwest of Scotland. And they were experiencing Scotland through the window of a bus. And I was having these incredible adventures in Scotland, hiking and bagging Monroe's and you know, going sailing. And I was like, the way you discover Scotland and a destination and a place is getting outside, being active and doing things. And that was the original idea. So with no money and no idea, I started Max Adventure in 2003.
0: And so Max Adventure focuses primarily today on self-guided trips where Max Adventure sort of provides the the support for the hikers. Was that always
1: the idea? Not at all. The original idea was to do guided trips in Scotland, but in the early days of business, you'll pretty much say yes to everything. And in the first year we were operating, a um, German woman phoned me up and says, can you plan and book my trip? And I said, of course, I'll do anything. And uh, that was our first self-guided customer. And um, she was a lovely woman, came back and visited me after the trip and gave me some feedback. And that's where the self-guided idea started from. And over time, we'd moved more and more towards self-guided. I think there are a couple of reasons that I think self-guided trips are better. I think, firstly, it's a much richer experience. It's unfiltered. You're not seeing a destination through the eyes of a guide or someone else. It's more rewarding simply because there's both more challenge, but because there's more challenge, personal challenge in taking responsibility, planning your own day, deciding what want to do, there's also a lot more reward at the end of the day. I think one of the big things for me as well is you get far more interaction with other travelers and local people. I think often when you're traveling in an organized group, you tend to be quite inwardly focused, whereas... I just love it. I'm a chatter, and on the trail, I'm always talking to people, and I just love the stories and where you're from and where you, what are you doing and where you're going, and I think you know you get this really, really super uh, rich experience uh, when you're traveling independently and taking responsibility for yourself.
0: And you've just mentioned some of the reasons you love self-guided trips. Well, I wonder if these reasons, do you think, are also why it has become so popular, why it has caught on, or are there are there things that you hear from your customers about why they love it so much that keeps them coming back and doing self-guided trips?
1: I think those are key factors, but I think that companies like Max have made it much more accessible. I think, you know, when I started the business 20 years ago, it was relatively, it was almost unheard of, especially as I think to North American customers, really kind of quite daunting. But I think what companies like Max have done is we've made it much more accessible by making the trip planning and logistics much easier because it's really daunting to try and book and arrange your own trip from the other side of the world in a different language uh, where you don't know a destination and you don't want to make a mistake in the planning and booking you know there's nothing worse than turning up at the end of the day it's been you know of course it's always a day that's been pouring with rain all day and you turn up and the accommodation doesn't meet your expectations or it's in the wrong place or it's on the top of the hill so i think it's it's businesses like us that have just made it much more accessible and it's helped people discover those fundamental benefits of traveling independently i think the other big driver is i think there's so many people like you and i have become much more confident and experienced in the outdoors so you know it's so many more people on the trails and taking responsibility and, and you know when you go hiking where you live whether that be a guy like me or California, like yourself, you don't need a guide. And so why, when you go to a new destination, do you need a guide to help you navigate? I think the other key driver is mobile technology has totally transformed the way we're able to travel independently. That's been a huge enabler to people to discover places that perhaps were a bit scary a little while ago.
0: Let's talk about that for a moment, because I think one of the things that I really loved in doing the West Highland Way through Max Adventure was the app that you guys have, that allows you to follow where you are on a map throughout the entire trip and basically has, has your back as far as not getting lost while you're hiking. How did that come about? And is that the kind of thing you're talking about that just makes people more comfortable doing this?
1: I can't tell you how thrilled I am to hear that because we had a, a real crunch at the, at the beginning of this year. We had to completely relaunch our app in a very, very short time period. And it was, it was quite a tough project. And initially, we had some real bumps doing it on, a, on a, such a short um, time frame. But it's actually a journey we started about five or six years ago. And I guess, you know, I'm a huge hiker and biker and, and I spend my life in the outdoors. And I had moved very much to doing my trip planning a, a lot on, on my desktop and laptop and then the navigation on my phone. And I think one of the the best examples I give is when I first arrived in London 20 something years ago, the first thing I did was I bought London A to Z and that's how you navigated London. Whereas now when I go down to London, the first thing I do is take up my phone and use Google Maps to go where I'm finding. And that, you know, people don't wanna go on a navigating vacation or navigating trip. They wanna go on a trip where they're spending time with their friends and their family and other people and discovering new places we started this journey of digitizing all our routes collecting all the gps tracks writing detailed route turn-by-turn descriptions and capturing those electronically and adding to the app so you know it's a project that's ongoing i think currently we have about three and a half thousand individual days of hiking and biking in the app and yeah it's great it's really opened up it's made it much more accessible to a lot of people who perhaps um, lack a bit of confidence in navigating and especially I think when you're traveling away from your home country you know the mappings different the navigations different and having an app which is you know works offline it doesn't use data and, and that confidence it just like I'm here I can get on with my day and having a good time instead of thinking oh am I in the right place because you know the, the thing that always keeps me right is I do a lot of hiking with my wife and my two kids who are 14 and 11. And it's fine if I get lost (laughs) on my own. But if if I get lost with my wife and two kids in tow, you know, I'm in for the high jump. So um, I think it's the same for most of us.
0: Yeah, and I can tell you, we did the Tour de Mont Blanc through Max in 2017. And then we did the West Highland Way this year. And doing the Tour to Mont Blanc, I used a paper map and the friend I was with used his GPS watch that he had loaded uh, tracks and was able to follow the trail. But I can tell you this time, it was so much easier for us with the same couple. We traveled with the same friends this time. And it was just incredibly easy using the app. So I will definitely be using that feature in the, in the future if I do more
1: trips with Max. Fab. I think that's made my day week and month. <laughs> It was a a big job at the beginning of this year. So
0: let's talk a little bit about what kind of trips Max offers. So you've got, it says on your website, I think something like 550 self-guided tours. And so a couple of questions there. What kind of tours? um, And also um, you mentioned it's primarily self-guided, but are there still guided trips is the other question.
1: So, yes, we've ended up with 550 trips mainly because everywhere I go and, and my team go, we're like, oh, this is an amazing destination for walking and biking. We do more, more walking trips than biking trips, and we also have a, a big range of, of pilgrim trips, so things like the Camino de Santiago. Broadly, the, the type of trips fall into a couple of different areas. The first is we have classic walks and mountain hikes appealing to like hiking enthusiasts, so people who are out on the trails regularly on the weekends and stuff like that, and those trips are very much about the hike. So the Tour de Mont Blanc is all about the hike. And sometimes we have to make a bit of compromises around the type of accommodation, the location. You know, some nights the accommodation is a bit more basic, but it's really about that experience of the trip. The second type of trip we have is what we call slow adventures. And really that's focused on really getting to know a special destination. So it's all about the food, the wine, fabulous little kind of local hotels with great food and great world that give you a super sense of a place. You know, still normally an end-to-end trip, you know, moving on uh, every night or every couple of nights, but probably a bit gentler, a bit more demanding than some of our kind of classic walks. Third area is for people who are celebrating a big event or, or like the finer things in life, which we call in-style. So trips where are really sp- picking like super special hotels and destinations. We've just launched one in, the, in Portugal, in the Jura Valley, which is just incredible.
0: I'm not going to tell my wife that you have those because <laughs> then I'll be stuck only on those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's like you need a, like that, those special birthdays and things like that. And, uh, and the final area is what we call discovery trips. That's when we're looking to explore more of a destination. So for example, let's say you're coming from north america to scotland you want to do some hiking but you you want to experience everything scotland has to offer so you know a trip like that might be something like scotland rail and hike where we're combining hiking and the trains so you're visiting like all the big sites edinburgh Skye, the highlands a couple of days in the west Highland way and that gives you a great like an kind of overall picture of a destination so although it's walking and biking there's some variation in there and really it's to appeal for to people looking for different things. But the fundamental thing is we're looking to share destinations and great destinations in an active, outdoor, authentic way.
0: And even those discovery trips, are those also self-guided?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, and uh, and to answer your um, question, there are a couple of destinations around the world which works better with a guide that we found at the moment are not quite ready for self-guided. So we do offer a handful of trips, uh, for example, in Nepal and Morocco, where you've got your own guide. So your group, whoever your traveling companions are, will have your own private guide. But um, over time, I'm sure that destinations like that will start to move into self-guided as well.
0: So one of the things that you mentioned that I think is really the biggest value in in using Max is being able to have your accommodations planned out for you and you not having to figure out what the right places are to stay and then try to get reservations on your own. Particularly if you're in a group, you know, when we did the Tour to Mont Blanc, it was two families with eight of us and, you know, four kids and four adults. And so we figured it would be much easier to use someone like Max for finding the right accommodations. But what else is Max providing when I pay Max to set up a trip for me besides accommodation?
1: So I think the, the first thing is that um, the trip planning and design, you know, currently we have a team of about 12 people across the business. And that's all they do. I mean, you know, talk about dream job, but that's what they do is they, they spend their lives looking at trips and possible trips and how can we make it work how does it work in terms of what itinerary should i do how long should i take um where should we stay and you know once they have those initial ideas they'll pitch we'll discuss but then they'll go like on visits to visit the destination and sometimes stuff that looks great on paper you know we've all looked at TripAdvisor and booked a great hotel and it hasn't been quite right when we've turned up you know stuff looks great and through this iterative process of visiting, planning, you know, hopefully we launch like really great trips that are tried and tested so that you're not making that mistake on your precious vacation time. So that trip planning is super important. The second thing is that things change. And because we have a, like a constant stream of feedback, you know, hotels change, they change owners, trails change. We're constantly improving our trips and. For something like the west town away we've been operating it for 20 years and every single year it gets slightly better so trip planning the logistics of just booking is super important i think the second thing is our destination specialists are great at fitting the right trip to the right person so often when you're going to a new destination you're like oh i don't quite know what to do and clearly your wife likes the finer things in life much like mine and we can say okay well you want to do this, your wife wants to do this, this trip would be great. And because a lot of them visit and travel on our trips, they, know, they can fit with the right trip instead of trying to kind of guess what's going to fit for you and your family. Luggage transfer is super important as well. I think we're all, well, for me, I'll speak personally, I'm getting older, <laughs> and I, I don't want to spend my, <laughs> my day with a huge pack. So I think that being able to kind of have luggage transfer every day, it's going to arrive. You know, you can get a change, you can have dry kit, you can be comfortable, you can go out for a posh dinner. And then I think that the other area that people forget about is we have a team of people that supports everyone on trip. And unfortunately, things occasionally don't go to plan. We were on a call this morning and there's kind of volcanic activity on uh, Mount Etna at the moment where we have people on trip. So we're having to rebook their trips on the thing. You know, on Tour de Mont Blanc a couple of weeks ago, there was a big landslide. We were there to rebook everyone's trip, make it happen. So we've got a whole team that instead of you going, oh, there's been a landslide. How am I going to get to the next valley, the next place? My hotel's closed down. You know, it's your problem. It's our problem. And that's what we spend a lot of time doing is looking after our um, travelers on trip.
0: So I can definitely see why Max would be the experts in the UK and and to an extent continental Europe, but you also mentioned trips in Nepal and places like that. How does Max gain expertise to be able to offer trips in these kinds of places?
1: Yeah, great question. And I think, um, you know, it is really a question of expertise and, you know, we're in the fortunate position that this is what we do all day, every day. And we know what makes a great trip and what our customers want. So, Basically, how it works in further afield is generally, we'll find a local partner, and we'll spend a lot of time making sure that local partner is really up to the standards that our customers expect. And, you know, because there's a huge variety um, in country. I think in Nepal, there's 700 trekking agencies. Finding the right one, which is to the right, quality standards, environmental sustainability standards, that they're offering port protection, that's the right level of accommodation, and again, we started wrecking our first trips in 2005 in Nepal. So we've, we've been traveling there since 2005 and had travelers. And it's about that peace of mind, really, to make sure that that trip is vetted and also is meeting your, your requirements. The other thing I think is a, it's a case of a consistent experience. We were just talking about the app and the information, the quality. So it's that knowing that you're going to get a consistent level of, of experience, documentation, knowledge, and then also the support and, and backup. I remember the first customer we ever sent to Nepal had to be airlifted out of, I think it was Teng Bochi due to L22 sickness four days into a trek. And, uh, you yeah, know, we were on the end of the phone. We sorted that out. So um, that's also what we do.
0: I noticed that Max even has trips here in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live. And I was actually surprised to see a photo of my hometown, Pacifica, California, where I grew up. Uh, I don't live there anymore. I live in a different part of the Bay Area now. But I saw you know, the beach that I was up the street from my whole childhood on your website, which was really surprising. And you have a trip that's a walk from Half Moon Bay to San Francisco that goes right through Pacifica. So I have a couple of questions. One, how is that going, doing trips on the California coast? And secondly, if you need accommodations, my mom has a spare bedroom and she's quite a cook.
1: <laughs> it sounds fantastic. Um, so we do have a team in, um, based mainly around Denver and Colorado. We established the office in 2017. And one of the reasons we established the office in 2017 is we really want to expand the range of destinations that self-guided trips are available because, you know, there's so many great destinations around the world. And in you know, in North America there's some absolutely fabulous destinations that we think are really well suited to self-guided walking. I'll be honest, it's been much, much tougher than we expected. We we need to find more people like your mom with spare bedroom <laughs> <laughs> and good cook. Because the difference in, in in the US is there's not the same level of infrastructure as there is in the UK and Europe in terms of waymark trails, you know, trails that connect great towns and villages together within walkable distance. I think I'm pretty good at planning trips, and it's been much more challenging than we expected. That said, during the pandemic in 2020, we really accelerated the development of these trips because obviously people couldn't travel internationally. And we launched the trips in California in 2020, late 2020. The pickup's been fantastic. We've actually, I was just checking, in the last couple of years, we've had 600 people walk or bike with us in the US So for a new destination spread. And actually, we've got 130 people in California on those trips, so your mom's going to be quite busy. You might not have (laughs) anywhere to stay next time you go. So it's going really well. You know, the feedback's been great, and it's been primarily... American customers who've done those trips because they've, you know, discovered end to end and self-guided walking in Europe. And they've just loved being able to explore California in a different way. It's a great experience. So the feedback's been really good and it's really exciting. We're hoping to expand it over time.
0: That's good to hear. And I do think there's a, a sort of mental barrier for a lot of Americans because a lot of us hike in the wilderness and that's how we view end-to-end walking here. And so I hike primarily, for example, in the Sierra Nevada Mountains of California, and that's with a tent, and carrying all my food and traditional backpacking, you know, wilderness backpacking. And I think one of the things you said that struck me is that a lot of the Americans who are doing these trips are people who have done walking trips in Europe and realize that there is this other kind of end to end walking where you stay in a hotel and you have a nice glass of wine in the middle of the afternoon. And, you know, it's a little bit more comfortable. So that's good to hear that it's sort of coming back here to the United States with folks who have tried it in Europe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my mission in life is is to share this style of travel with people who love hiking and love the outdoors, because, you know, it's just fantastic. And I'd, I used to do more wilderness hiking, but I've gotten really soft. And now, like, I won't hike, I won't hike anywhere unless there's like a, you know, nice meal at the end, and certainly a cold beer. So um, it's, um, it's really taking off. But, it, you know, it's a slow journey to kind of popularize it, explain it. And it's probably, you know, we haven't always done the best job at it, but it's certainly gaining momentum, which is super exciting for, for someone like me, who's, you know, that really is my life's mission is to to help people discover destinations like this. And I was just, you know, so good to be out on the trail. I was actually, I did a, a three-day biking trip around the Scottish borders and Northumberland in, in Northeast England last weekend. And we had amazing weather. There was a great trip. And I was with three friends. And a friend and I were just at the hotel bar in Wooler, And we were ordering some beers. It had a great day. And he was like, oh, this is just such a great way to travel and discover a place. I was like, yeah, I should start a business about this, <laughs> shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I think that's a good segue into talking about the West Highland Way itself. Was this the first trip that Max offered back when you began the business?
1: It sure was. And it's still our most popular and busiest. And um, yeah, so the West Highland Way is the first trip we ever offered in 2003.
0: And what makes it special? Why do people love doing the West Highland Way?
1: It is just fantastic. And I think there are a couple of things that make it fantastic as I've kind of thought about it over the years. The first thing is there's this amazing sense of camaraderie on the trail. So, as you start, you, t- you know, someone else is starting at the same time, and it doesn't matter if they're backpacking or staying in hostels or camping or, or or traveling with us. You know, taking photos, chatting, where you're going it's a sense of excitement. And I live in Mulgai, and, you know, I catch the train in from Mulgai Station often in the morning. And, you know, the baggage van's there, the people getting off the train. And the thing is that they start, these total strangers, and I know that in seven days they'll get to Fort William and they'll go for... You know, a celebratory pint or meal, and they'll know half the people in the pub. And I think that camaraderie is particularly special, but that's not unique to the West Hunter way. I think that's common to a lot of long-distance trips. I think the second thing is it's got real variety. So you feel like you're going on a real journey. You start in Mulgai on the outskirts of Glasgow, which is a suburb. The first day is gentle rolling hills. Then you've got two to three days along the side of Loch Lomond through the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park, which is quite steep-sided wooded glens. Then it opens up to these really open, expansive, amazing Scottish glens that you can imagine. And then you finish on the West Coast under Ben Nevis and a variety of accommodation. So that variety feels like you've just been on this incredible journey. I think the final thing I would say, you it goes without saying that the scenery is incredible, the final thing I'd say is that every time I do it, I feel like I'm kind of walking through history. You know, you feel like you can just sense that this kind of the drovers from the Middle Ages and the military roads from the 1800s that were built by the English trying to suppress the clans and coaching ins that have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I think that that feeling of, you know, going on a journey that people have been doing for eons. It's just something deeply rewarding um, and uh, really makes it quite special.
0: I think everything you said makes perfect sense to me, having now done the trip. Of course, the camaraderie is, is important. And like you said, you can get that on other trips as well. But that is a fantastic thing about these kinds of trips. But the change in scenery, I thought, was the biggest surprise to me. I had expected the Highland scenery, but I hadn't expected the sort of buildup to getting to it. Of starting in sort of farmland and then going along Loch Lomond and then finally getting to the Highlands. And so for me, that was the most rewarding thing was really seeing that change over time and experiencing the way travel on foot can really bring you to a new destination. And it's a very rewarding feeling to experience that. One question I have, though, about the change in scenery is what are the highlands? I'm still confused about this term because they're not high in elevation, right? Like that was my (laughs) mindset. Is it just high in elevation? But that's not what it is. So can you tell me the difference between the lowlands and the highlands in Scotland?
1: So I had exactly the same problem. That first girlfriend who brought me to to Scotland and to Alapool, she lived in Alapool, which is on the coast. She's like, I'm from the Highlands of Scotland. And I said, how can you be from the Highlands? You live on the coast. <laughs> and um, so it, it's taken me many years to kind of get over this, this thing. So essentially what it is, it's uh, geological. And there's a, something called the Highland Boundary Fault Line, which runs from about on the west, kind of cuts the Isle of Arran in half. And it runs um, from the southwest through to the northeast of Scotland, that essentially cuts this, the country in half. And north of that boundary fault, which is actually really distinct, so if you remember walking along the top of Connick Hill, that is the edge of the boundary fault. And it's just basically, it gets properly mountainous um, above that, and all the Monroe's are above the Highland boundary fault, so Monroe's are mountains in Scotland over 3,000 feet. And below that is considered the lowlands. So it's geological rather than how high it is or low it is. I hope that's made it slightly clearer, but it's still slightly confusing to everyone.
0: That is clear. One of the things that I also noticed, and I guess the way that geography impacts human migration or living patterns, is that I think there's just over 5 million people in Scotland. In the Highlands, there's only something like 230,000 people or some small number. It's a very small percentage of the population that live in the Highlands.
1: It's very, very empty, especially the, the Western Highlands, which gets a lot more rain than the East. So, yeah, it's, it's, it has this wonderful feeling of space. And, you know, it starts just half an hour's drive from Glasgow. It's amazing. You walk up a hill, you look over the other side, and there's just nothing. There's no development, no people. And it's great to, to live in a place that, where it's so accessible. The other important thing I should say about the Highlands and the lowlands, if you're a whiskey drinker, the Highland moulds are from north of the Highland Boundary Fault lowlands are from south. So when you start the West Way in your first day you pass Glengoyne Distillery, that's a lowland single malt because it's south of Conic Hill. When you get to Ben Nevis and you're in at the Ben Nevis distillery, it's a Highland single malt. Very but, important. Uh, very important yeah. distinction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, the other thing you
0: mentioned about the history I do think was important, too. And for me and for my wife, we didn't know anything about the history of Scotland, but we felt like we learned a lot by walking through it and then just you know getting on Wikipedia back in our accommodations in the evening to learn a little bit about what we had seen and in particular, I remember going through I think it's near Tindrum is the name, maybe the name of the town, yeah, yeah. where there was a, a battlefield near there that Robert the Bruce had fought at, and you know that was in the 1200s, and I didn't know I had heard the name, but didn't really know much about him and, and learned quite a bit about him during the trip, including, you know doing important research like watching the Netflix movie about him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I do think that history is important.
1: Oh, super important. And I think that's what makes a truly great trail. It has to be multi-layered. It can't just be great scenery. It has to have purpose or food or history or culture or a story. And it's when the really great trails of the world is when you get this multi-layered and that's what makes it super interesting. So, you know, regardless of whether your passion is history or whiskey, you know, that there's something in it. And the West Hunter Way is one of those truly great walks because it has this multi-dimensional and multi-textured aspect to it.
0: So you mentioned also that Ben Nevis is at the end of the trip, and it's not technically part of the West Highland Way, but a lot of people like to hike it if they have the time. I've heard something that you've hiked Ben Nevis like over 100 times. Is that true?
1: <laughs> it sure is. It's like uh, I lost count over about once i passed about 130 times. <laughs> when I first started the business, I used to do quite a lot of guided trips and uh, a lot of guided weekends and and guiding on Ben Nevis both in summer and winter. Yeah, when you're doing it like three days in a row, it's um, it you know it quickly adds up. And I think it's quite interesting. I mean, people look look at me like I've lost my head sometimes. I mean, I would add that there's some people who've done it, you know, thousands of times guides in the western highlands but um i think there are a couple of things to to remember is first in my experience you're only going to get a view from the top about one in every 10 times and the second thing you know for me it became not about the walk or the hike it actually became about the people i was talking to and what i was learning about the world because you walk the same trail 130 times the trail doesn't change, but the people you're walking with do. And that was fascinating. And uh, some of the stories and experience I've had guiding on, on that hill, or, you know, we call it a mountain in Scotland. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's great and uh, great memories, but uh, it's been a few years since I've been out. As my kids have got a bit older, we, we tend to do much more hiking in the Alps. So um, I, I tend to you know, spend a, more time hiking with friends and family rather than, you know, moved away from guiding.
0: So are there other side trips along this hike that people should consider doing? For example, Ben Lomond, or like you mentioned, Conic Hill, which is right off the trail.
1: Yeah, I mean, Conic Hill is just a little short diversion for five minutes. For me, personally, I would concentrate on on just sticking to the core hike in terms of the actual walking, because I think it, it keeps the integrity of it in the journey and also it keeps you at the same pace of a lot of other people doing it, so these relationships and the people you get to know over the trip is really good. But there's some really super interesting stuff. So I think like it's really fun. I mentioned it earlier to go and do a, a whiskey tasting at Glencoe Distillery on the first day. It's quite an easy short day, and they do like an amazing tour They do this brilliant tour where you combine whiskey and chocolate tasting, oh, okay. and it's like fab. And it's just like something really rich to start the trip on. And I think on the other side of things, um, you know, if you really are looking to, to break it, quite a lot of people take the train out to Oban for the day from either Tindrum or Bridge of Orkey, which is quite fun. But I think the, other, the nice thing to do at the end of the trip as a something completely different um, from Fort William to Malague on the West Coast is a historic steam train line. So it's a, a steam journey which goes out from Fort William to, to Malague. It's just a day trip but it's actually the, the train they used in the Harry Potter films. So, you know, it's a bit of fun at the end, and it's a l- another aspect to it, even though it's not hiking.
0: My wife and I, after we finished the trip, the couple we were with left and went their own way, and then we decided to, we went to Isle of Skye, and Inverness, and then ultimately Edinburgh. Cool. But we were sitting at the bus stop waiting for our bus to Isle of Skye, and we saw that Harry Potter train sitting there. <laughs> so it was a kind of neat experience seeing all the steam coming out and people gathering to look at it. That's no, fun. All right, so any tips for people doing the West Highland way? Anything that they should think about that might make it a better trip or a more interesting trip?
1: Yeah, a couple of things I would say is, firstly, don't worry about the weather. The weather in Scotland is what it is. If it's raining at 8 o'clock, it'll probably the sun will be shining at 5 past. And the, the saying we have is, like, if you don't like the weather in Scotland, wait five minutes. Yeah. Don't worry about the weather. And the second thing I would say is just be friendly. You know, just talk and engage and and speak to people. And whether they be fairly, fellow hikers on the trail or whether they be, you know, locals like me who live in Mulgai or someone in Fort William or the innkeeper, the shopkeeper, because the experience will be so much richer if you really engage with people on the trail.
0: That is great advice. Uh, Both of those, by the way, the weather, we learned pretty quickly that if you put on your rain jacket, you're going to be taking it off very quickly. (laughs) Yeah. We also, I I agree. I mean, we met people from all over and this is a good thing in my mind. We did not meet that many Americans, more Canadians, I think, than Americans and people from continental Europe. I guess it's a question for you is where are most of your customers from that do the West Highland way? Is it pretty mixed?
1: Yeah, so it's hugely mixed. Uh, Well, for us, our main markets are the UK in the US and Canada and Germany. We have a business in Germany as well. So most of our customers come from, you know, those core destinations as well as Australia New Zealand, South Africa. But actually, walking the walk, there are a huge amount of people from the Netherlands, Germany. It's really well known. Often the the Netherlands and Germany, often they tend to be the younger campers and, and doing it on a budget. But it's, it's really, really popular with people from Scotland and the UK as well. It's like almost a rite of passage from people in Scotland.
0: We got that sense. We met a family from Scotland who was hiking it with their dog, cool. which was really great to see. And they were camping, but they were also eating in all the same restaurants. So it was, yeah. you know, we saw them day after day. Um, and I agree, getting to know some of the people who live in the, the villages along the way is important too. Whatever, I can't remember the name of the guest house you guys set us up with in Tindrum, but the, the owner there was wonderful. And we talked to him and his wife quite a bit and spent time with them and um, ran into him actually a couple of days later when he was going to visit another area, <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, having a beer out on a porch. And we showed up and saw him again. So that, I agree. That's a f- fantastic part of of the West Highland Way and of a lot of trips where you get to know the local communities.
1: Yeah, you've got to be you've got to be very careful on these long distance trips because there's like a bush telegraph. Yeah. So <laughs> you say something. You say <laughs> you say something to someone at the start, and Mulgai and you know. Two seconds later, it's being transferred to the someone, you know, the person in, in Fort William. It's uh, it's it's really funny. It's really a community of the people who work and live on it. It's
0: definitely the case. And you notice, you know, you, it might take me two days to walk to that place where I saw him again, but it was a 20-minute drive for him. So, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for talking to me about the West Highland Way, but I do have some other questions for you. One is my wife and I and the other couple that we hiked with and we've hiked with twice using Max Adventure are, are thinking about what our next trip Trip should be on Max adventures our friends have specific requirements so they want private rooms for each couple which we did have on the West Highland way which was great luggage transfer which we again had and then I think the time period would be somewhere in the seven to twelve days you know week week and a half kind of length of time what would you recommend as uh, you know we've done the tour to Mont Blanc with through Max and we've done the West Highland way what's our next trip
1: yeah great question so. What's really interesting is private rooms are available on the vast majority of our trips. Now, you know, even in the, the high alpine trips, there's been a real change from like dormitories into into private rooms. They're not always plentiful, but it's always doable. Same thing for luggage transfer; it's generally generally available. So you haven't narrowed it down okay. for me much. So thanks <laughs> out of five fifty, but like I'll tell you what I, I would say. I think within the UK, I think one of the absolute classic iconic trips, which has the same level of variety and change is the English Coast to Coast, which is based on the book by Alfred Wainwright, and it's hugely popular. It's quite, quite a demanding trip, but it goes through three national parks. It's very varied. It's a bit longer, and I would say you, you know, perhaps when you're not so time pressured, it would be a few days later. Um, the other trips I would think about in the kind of Britain and the Isles almost certainly be the dingle way in in ireland i think ireland you know again the texture i love about traveling in ireland is the people and the whole cayley and and pub culture that you're in all these little towns on the west coast of ireland and you know every little town they've got these tiny little pubs and you go in there's someone playing or singing and telling a story and i i think that's super trip the only downside of the dingle way in ireland The access is slightly different. So there's a bit more road walking, these kind of little narrow lanes and stuff. It's not busy roads. such as done. The Dingleway is a super trip. The Via in Italy is another one of these classic kind of bucket list trips.
0: Can you get private rooms on that one?
1: We've got some variations. So the whole trip is quite a long trip, but we've got some variations. But I would say... It's it's a bit tight sometimes it gets really booked up because it's a trip but we're just working on some variations just focusing more on walking the Dolomites I mean to me like anyone who loves hiking has to walk in the Dolomites and we we're kind of working on some slightly softer trips where you're still accessing that incredible walking but you're not getting like you know twenty people snoring which is not for everyone and then a destination which we're just seeing a huge growth in at the moment is Portugal I'm actually going to Portugal in a couple of weeks and. It's just blossomed over the last few years. They've got these really great trails again that they're kind of almost revitalizing historic trails. And they've got one just down in the south and kind of wild area, the Alejanto. And it starts right in the the kind of southwest tip of Portugal called the, the Rota Ventantina or the Fisherman's Trail. And it's just fantastic. It's quite wild, really authentic little places and Portugal's got this wonderful culture of food and hospitality and wine, you know, great trip. So I probably haven't helped you by giving you too many options.
0: I have a friend from Milan and he's been telling me forever that I have to hike the Dolomites. So it's on my <laughs> short list. And I actually did an episode on the show on the Alta Via and a separate one on the Rota Vicentina. So I, I am aware of both of those. Oh, great. And those are definitely on the short list. So we'll be we'll be getting back to you <laughs> to book another trip at some point.
1: look forward to having you back. One thing that I feel like
0: I have to ask, we're here in 2022. How did you guys survive the pandemic?
1: I'm trying to uh, blank that on my (laughs) mind. Uh, (laughs) It was devastating. You spend 18 years building up a fantastic business with great people and and a a huge customer base. And, you know, we were ready to take over 30,000 people on trips in 2020. And the next thing, you know, everything just gets put on hold. And I live in Mulgai on the West Tana Way. from my home office window. I can see people going up the first hill on the West Tana Way, And i taken that for granted. And I realized that I just absolutely love seeing people setting off on their adventure every day. And my life's work has been around making that possible for people. And I suddenly couldn't do that. And I couldn't work with the amazing people in our business that did it. So firstly, It really reinforced my purpose and what we're trying to do at max in terms of enabling and and helping people just to discover self-guided active travel so it gave me a lot of energy to get through the challenges and there were a lot of challenges there were a lot of challenges around having to let go people having to rebook and cancel people's trips our team have never worked harder um both as we had to rebook and and look after our customers and our team and our brand and our company and and cash. So we focused on doing the right things by our customers, by our people, by our suppliers, by our industry. And that stood us in in great stead. We'd always run the business quite prudently. So we were in a a great, um, you know, strong cash position. But one of the great things that, that happened through the pandemic is I actually brought in another shareholder into the business an investor called Simon from a different industry he comes from a tech background but like you and me he loves hiking and and cycling and so Simon came on board as a shareholder and my a minority shareholder and that gave us the financial stability that we you know we, we could continue to grow and rebuild the business and since um, May last year business has never been stronger you know there's this I think like me when people couldn't travel and they couldn't hike they realized how important it was and how much joy and fulfillment it gave in their life so we've been really really busy since then i think one of the challenges has been across the whole industry is that the whole supply chain in the travel and hospitality industry got devastated so everyone in the industry is having to build up their staff their systems their people you know learn how to do everything again and certainly earlier this year this was a, that was a real challenge you know the great news is I really do feel that the industry is getting back on its feet and in a much better place than it was when travel first returned. So, yeah, we survived. And I think actually we'll look back at it at in time and say this is the best thing that ever happened to us because it's, you know, rekindled our passion and our focus and made us more excited than ever to connect more people than ever with active travel.
0: That is very well put, and I have to say you are quite an optimist to think that this is the best thing that has ever happened to you. (laughs) But I guess that's the only way to look at it. So, Neil, um, before you go, I've got a few questions. I'd like to ask a few fun wrap-up kind of questions at the end of of the episodes. What is one piece of gear you always bring with you on a multi-day hike that you think is important to carry?
1: A buff. I couldn't go anywhere without without a buff. Because uh, that's my go-to.
0: Okay, keeps you warm when it gets cold around the in breeze or something like that.
1: I have crazy hair that, <laughs> <laughs> that just goes <laughs> that just goes wild, and uh, it keeps my hair looking vaguely presentable.
0: <laughs> All right, what is the dumbest thing you've done while hiking or adventure traveling?
1: Oh, this is a very long list. We could do an entire episode <laughs> on this. Uh, <laughs> but often it comes down to like not looking at the map properly. The amount of times because I spend a lot of time outdoors. I'm a bit casual. And I go like, oh, we'll just go here and here. And suddenly I haven't looked at it properly. And there's like a thousand meters of descent and ascent between here and here. You know, that's probably the dumbest, but yeah, I could fill an episode. With that. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah. Getting lost is something I have definitely specialized in uh, as well. <laughs> All right. What is one hiking trip you've done besides the West Highland Way that you think others really shouldn't miss out on?
1: it has to be the tour de mont blanc i mean I, I think you know you you've obviously done it jeremy i just love it so much three countries highest mountain in europe different food i just love that area of the alps so much and uh, it's so special and people can do nothing else the tour de mont blanc is the one for me
0: i agree what is your next trip
1: i'm Going to Portugal next week, which will be fun. But apart from that, I'm hiking in the Chamonix Valley in October and snowshoeing in the Val Danavis in Switzerland over New Year. So really excited about that.
0: Nice. Neil Lapping, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate
1: it. It's been uh, so much fun and thanks so much for your time.
0: Thanks again to Neil Lapping for coming on the show. I really appreciate him doing that. Let's talk about the trail itself now. First, difficulty. This is really a trail that anyone can do. I was actually surprised at how moderate this trail was in difficulty. For the quality of the scenery you get on this hike, it's actually a quite easy trail to walk. The hardest walking on the entire trail was part of the way along the shore of Loch Loman. It was a really rocky area with lots of tree roots and a lot of quick up and down. There's also the Devil's Staircase, which is toward the end of the hike on the last couple days, which is one of a few significant inclines. But really, the inclines were not very significant, and the trail mostly stayed in the valleys between the mountains, which was a very uh, generous way to route the trail, and as I said, allowed you to have amazing views without huge effort. As far as time of year goes, this is really a spring through fall hike. So most of the year is fine. You probably just avoid winter. June and September are probably the best months because those are the shoulders of the summer season. So you get summer weather without the crowds. So we hiked, of course, in July, which was high season. But it worked out fine for us, and we had our accommodations set up in advance through Max Adventure. And it was not a problem. And and although the trail was busy, I hadn't expected this to be a wilderness adventure. I had expected it to be a tour of the different things to see in the Scottish Highlands. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't planning to be out there alone. So it didn't bother me that there were quite a few other people on the trail. And it does make for some fun camaraderie to follow sort of day to day with a group who are hiking the same route that you're hiking. If you use a company like Max Adventure and you have luggage transfer through them, which we did, You really only need to carry a day pack with your rain gear and some snacks and maybe a a few emergency pieces of gear like a first aid kit and a headlamp in case you ended up lost in the dark. But the reality is you don't need to carry very much when you have luggage transfer. As Neil pointed out, you shouldn't worry too much about the Scottish weather. It's pretty mild in the summer, and I would imagine the shoulder seasons aren't horrible either. It does rain a lot, but the rain that we experienced wasn't heavy and it didn't last. Scotland is actually interesting as far as weather, because even though it gets a lot of rain, if you look at the latitude of Scotland, it's pretty far north, and you would expect there to be really cold weather a lot of the time, and it's just not the case. And the reason for that is the Gulf Stream. So there is a warm water current off the west coast of Scotland, which makes Scotland much warmer than it would otherwise be at that latitude. So really, you need rain gear, but Nothing special as far as that goes. And you probably will take it off and put it on quite a bit, meaning it won't stay on very long. As I've mentioned before, a headnet is an essential piece of gear. Even if you don't use it very much, you will be thankful to have it for the times when the midges are out in force. As I mentioned during the interview with Neil, for navigation, I used the app that Max Adventure has, uh, and that really worked well. It literally has turn-by-turn GPS and tells you where you are. They also provide maps and you could use those paper maps. I printed out a few of those as backups in case my phone died. The trail is marked well. There are these brown posts with a yellow thistle painted on them. The thistle is a very common plant in Scotland and and a symbol of Scotland. And so that's the symbol they use for the West Highland Way posts. So you, you end up looking for those posts to make sure you're still on the trail and that works quite well. There's a book called West Highland Way by Charlie Loram and Joel Newton that Max Adventure provided a copy to each of us free, or I shouldn't say free, but as part of our package. And that book has very good maps that are hand-drawn and on a very big scale, meaning that they're close-up views of specific areas. So they're really helpful if you're trying to figure out, you know, do I turn left at this particular guest house or do I cross this bridge here or go there? All that stuff is on the map in a way that you can identify. So the maps in that book are good to have. So I brought the book with me day to day. To get to the trail, you basically take a commuter train from Glasgow to Milgai. It's the end of the line on the commuter train, but it's only about 20 to 30 minutes out of Glasgow. We flew into Glasgow and we spent a couple of nights there first, which gave us a full day to see Glasgow, which I recommend you do. Edinburgh is the city most people love to visit In Scotland and it certainly is a wonderful city and Andy and I visited Edinburgh after our hike but uh, I think Glasgow is worth a visit and it's convenient for this hike. There are no permits needed for the hike. As far as time and distance the hike is about 96 miles of just the trail although there are places where you'll end up going off the trail a bit to get to a particular spot so at the end of the day you're probably going to hike 100 miles which is about 160k although the official trail is 154 K. This is a five to 10 day hike, depending on what kind of hiker you are. I think probably a week is most common, but we hiked it in nine days. We took a pretty relaxed pace and there were a couple of places where we could have made days longer, but we didn't. And it was enjoyable for us to get to know Scotland a little better by spending more time lingering and less time pushing ourselves on the trail. We hiked it from south to north, which is definitely the direction I recommend hiking this trail, though we did see a few people hiking the other direction. But when you go from south to north, you're starting from the outskirts of Glasgow, and you're starting in the lowlands and farmland, moving through the national park where Loch Lomond is, and then ending up in the highlands. So you sort of are going from urban to rural to lake to wild. And it's a nice sequence that sort of opens you up as you experience it. So I really enjoyed that direction. And that's the direction I would recommend hiking this trail. And as I said, we did utilize the luggage transfer that Max Adventure set up for us. And so I think that's something that is easy to do here because you're not out in a wilderness area. There are roads between locations and it's easy to get your luggage sent ahead each day. All right, so with that, let's talk about the itinerary for the West Highland Way on a nine day hike. I'll give you some of my thoughts about each of these days and the locations and highlights as we go through it. Alright, day one. Day one is Mill Guy to Drimmen. So we started out day one, as I said, by taking the train from Glasgow to Milgai. Here's a little audio of us at the train station anticipating our first day on the trail. All right, so we are here at day three in scotland but day one of the trip waiting at the train station don how'd you sleep last night
2: not well <laughs> have not adapted yet to the change in the time zone
0: and we've got to go what like 12 miles today
2: 12 miles should be pleasant
0: pretty flat looks like it's about to rain but not too badly grant you ready for this
3: i'm ready Are you ready Yep.
0: all right
2: and i just add about the weather that it's perfect hiking
0: weather it is yeah it's nice I agree. it's what is it like 60 degrees or something yeah. yeah it's light drizzle light drizzle yeah
3: very scottish
0: and probably feels just like seattle it does yes. <laughs> andy you ready for this i'm ready yeah so instead of taking a day off yesterday how many miles did we walk during the day Dawn?
2: Uh a little over nine miles
0: <laughs> around glasgow <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that was supposed to be our day off before Definitely the start yeah. of our hike <laughs> But including lawn bowling. Including lawn bowling, yeah, that was including all the walking during lawn bowling, yes. which was a lot of fun. All right, I think we're ready. I
2: think we are too. We're I'm, ready.
0: I'm excited. The first day starting in Guy is a 12 mile hike or 19 kilometer hike. It goes through lowland farmland. But also passes close to the Glengoyne Distillery, which Neil mentioned. And Grant and Dawn actually went on a tour of the distillery when we went through there. I was also introduced on the first day to something called an Honesty Box. And basically what this is are little stands that sell treats like chips and crackers or maybe a cooler with popsicles and drinks. Uh, But there's nobody there. They have prices listed. And you put the money in a little box and you take the item that you want. And I thought this was a great system to have honesty boxes along the route. In fact, the first day, Andy and I went to the place we were going to have lunch and they were closed. So we didn't actually have a place to have lunch. So we just bought some snacks from the honesty box that was nearby. And that worked for us to have lunch the first day. The first night we stayed at the Brayside B&B in in Drimmon. Drimmon's a cute little town. I enjoy Drimmon. It has um, an old pub, it has a couple of restaurants, it has a small grocery store. It's a decent-sized little town, and um, enjoyed my time there. Once we got to Drimin and checked in and sat down outside in some lawn chairs at the Brayside Inn, I sat down with Grant, and we talked about the day and a little bit about his experience uh, obtaining some whiskey at Glengoyne Distillery. All right, so here's the question. Is every day going to have a distillery in the middle of the hike? Sadly, no.
3: Only day one. You yeah, know. only day one. That's a good trick, right? Start it's, off on day one, halfway. You've got a distillery. Flat. Yeah. Distillery. Right. Makes you think that the rest of the tour is going to be that way, but it's not. I know it's not. Okay. I'm not fooled. You're not fooled. I'm not fooled.
0: But you, you bought enough whiskey at... The distillery, midway through day one, to get you through the rest of the trip. I
3: think think so. I'm hoping. (laughs) It's going to be touch and go. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if you drink it all tonight. Exactly. Yeah, that
1: would be a problem.
0: As Grant and I were discussing the day, Don and Andy joined us, and Don and I talked a bit about our impressions of the first day. You'll notice that Dawn is ever an optimist, which is great to have along on a trip like this where there are lots of highs and lows.
2: So what did you think of the first day? I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you love it? Well, it's, I love hiking at home, but this is completely different than home. You know, it's the the woods are different. The path was different. (laughs) The people on the trail were different. (laughs) The um, yeah, it was it was great.
0: That was great. What were, what were your, like? What were you thinking? I guess we've done one day, so we don't know yet. What, mm-hmm. going on, but what were you thinking it would be like? Is it what you expected? I guess.
2: Yeah. Uh, I didn't know what the like the feeling of the woods would be like. Like for me, that's a big deal. Like how did the trees feel? All of that. And they were different. They
0: were really yeah. different. Yeah. Uh, I like the yeah. way it started out today. I like going mm-hmm. up over the hill, down the hill, mm-hmm. view of the, those, like, taller, whatever, they call it, I don't even What did you call it? Monroe's? Yes, that was yeah. the word. Yeah. The, but yeah. then um, that was a little less interesting for a while in the middle of the valley, just kind of like in a tree tunnel in the valley or a hedgerow or whatever. Oh. And I thought it got more interesting again when I had a little bit of perspective coming up where mm-hmm. you could see again a little perspective over I was not well, excited terribly about the road walking, but...
2: Oh, I didn't mind the road walking at all. I thought it was pleasant.
0: I just didn't like that like the cars weren't really slowing
2: down. <laughs> oh. We were hiking with a German fellow yeah. at that point, And he literally he put his hand out to to like wave them to stop. And they did.
0: Oh, uh, Maybe
2: that's what I should have done. Yeah. No, Anyways, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was quite nice to have a distillery along the way. Yeah. 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 And the honesty boxes for that us was... were really fun to encounter.
0: That came in handy for me because we didn't get lunch. <laughs> we were going to get lunch and <laughs> the place was closed. So the honesty boxes it was uh, potato chips.
2: And so, yeah, it worked out great. Uh, yeah, yeah for good. us it came out perfect because it was starting to get quite hot and... And I said to Gret, if that honesty box has a popsicle, like that would make my day. And it did. <laughs> like who would have guessed yeah, that an honesty the, box? Kind
0: of, I think I saw the popsicles, but now I don't remember what Strawberry.
2: Kind of, the strawberry popsicle.
0: <laughs> yeah, they were good, yeah. yeah. And what did you, so you mentioned you liked the distillery, but I don't see you as like, a, you met a good whiskey person. So what was good cool no. was like learning about the process? Yes, learning
2: about the process, um, meeting the people yeah. at the factory. Right, you like any factory tours. I love factory any. tours. <laughs> like, I don't really care what they're making, cigarettes, make, make, whatever.
0: Right, whiskey and yeah. gumdrop.
2: He's right. I like seeing how things are made. I find it interesting.
0: Yeah. 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 And so when you, this funny thing is when you said, what's funny to me is that you said there's going to be this distillery tour that's halfway. Yeah. I thought you meant halfway through the trip. Oh. I didn't realize it was halfway through day one. Which I was Grant and I were joking about earlier, earlier. Like, he thinks he's definitely getting sold a bill of goods yeah, because no, that's, the first no day questions. you get to go on a so, distillery yeah. tour and, and no questions. tasting. I don't, think Sadly that's, I don't think
2: that's true because <laughs> I don't think so. Look what you're going to carry in your bag tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a bill of goods because tomorrow we're going to Loch okay, yeah. And that's going to be gorgeous. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's... I'm sure there's something wonderful about each day.
0: I think you're right. It's always like...
2: Yeah. I think tomorrow's going to be quite different
0: yeah I think so too I always give, like on these trips I've learned like, I think they I was trying to figure out if they started the hike where they did because it's just like where the train yeah. ended and it's where they, you need to start the hike and then so maybe you kind of got to work your way into the mountains.
2: Know, yeah that's a good question <clears throat> I think they started it there because it was a beautiful place to start it there
0: it was a nice start. Like I said I liked the first part of the day almost the
2: best. Yeah, it was fun walking through the suburbs
0: mm-hmm.
2: of Glasgow, really.
0: Yeah, oh, and I guess I was thinking more once we started coming up out of that, and you had those like that coming up hill and seeing the views and mm. starting to see some of the mountains.
2: That was. Interesting. I thought it was just fun seeing the suburbs. It was it was cool how different their architecture was.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's
2: true. Yeah, and seeing how people use the path. For their everyday yeah, going jogging or dog walking, yeah. yeah. And
0: especially yeah. like in places like this where the people are kind of excited to see that you're coming from wherever you are in the world, mm-hmm. from wherever you're from in the world, to see their place where they live. And it's kind of a cool thing.
2: There are a huge, there are people here from all over. Yeah. We met a people, a family from Brazil.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. They were huh. fun. They like to practice their English. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah.
0: yeah. How's your Portuguese?
2: non-existent yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it is cool that people come from all over to see the west yeah. island way
0: uh-huh. yeah. all right well i'm looking forward to tomorrow because we're going to do a real hill and then we're going to end up at lock loman that sounds
2: great yeah yeah it will be beautiful i'm sure
0: maybe a bit cold i think that's right it probably will be it's supposed to rain <laughs> yeah not that be okay. i don't think it's going to be that heavy. i yeah. think it'll be drizzling
2: i think it's going to be excellent i really
0: do okay day two is driven to Balmaa or balmaha i'm not going to be able to say this one right so i apologize this was a short day for us it was only seven miles and 11 kilometers and this is one of those days that could have easily been twice that length to the next place to stop but in keeping with our mellow pace that we wanted to have. We made this basically a half day and we got in in the early afternoon and that worked great for us. On this part of the trail, you get your first glimpse of sort of what the highlands might look like. You go by Conic Hill, which is a pretty good sized hill that Andy and I actually went to the top of in the middle of a driving rainstorm, which I absolutely love for some reason. There was something just so bizarrely freeing about being absolutely blasted by rain on the top of a summit. Uh, we had our rain gear on and we weren't going to die or anything, but it was it was a bizarre experience and one that uh, I really enjoyed. Connachill is not really in the Highlands, but it's it's sort of the edge of that boundary fault, and it gives you a sense of what the Highlands are going to feel like in the future as you get there later on the hike. And then after Connachill, you come down and you have an amazing view over Loch Loman. and then you reach the shore of Loch Loman at Balmaha or Balma. <laughs> We stayed at the Oak Tree Inn, which is a cool little sort of bed and breakfast with a nice restaurant. It also has a great little shop that has ice cream and chocolate and coffee and was really a nice little sort of resort feel to it. Not really a town, more of a resort area with a few guest houses and a restaurant or two. So we had a great afternoon and evening there and then sat down and had dinner. And just as dessert was about to come, I turned on the microphone and we talked about our day. Don't. So you, you have something you want to say about today's hike? What do you want to say?
2: No, I was just <laughs> going to say that I really am glad we stopped at Balhama. Balmaha? Balmaha. Hey
1: okay, guys, the tart. Oh, it's over here. Oh wow. is that, is That's beautiful. That's, beautiful.
2: That's, That's really that gorgeous. It's strawberry sundae. <laughs> That's really and the tart as well. Beautiful. Yeah, good. Yes. Thank you. But part of the reason why is not necessarily the lodging, but this is such a festive restaurant. Yeah. The menu was incredible, the service was incredible.
0: A nice, a nice deck, and a, yeah. you know, ice cream, coffee shop. Yeah.
2: And the people who work here are pretty wonderful.
0: Wait, so what did you think of, so the, the hill today was, I like the hill,
2: the conic part, uh-huh. was a conic hill. Uh-huh, conic hill. I like
0: it because it was sort of like the first taste of the real highlands, I thought, and mm-hmm. like what they look like beyond it. We're,
2: we're not in the highlands yet. I know,
0: like, when I looked it up in the book, it said that that was the border. Okay. And if you look beyond it, the other direction, when we're looking up it, was all heather and hills. But that's sort of yeah. like what you're going to see. Yeah.
2: It was the first Heather that we saw. It was the first Heather we saw, and it was gorgeous, yes. Yes. That incredible color, Ah, I didn't expect.
0: And then Andy and I, perversely because we're from California where it never rains, likely we got blasted with rain on the sunlight. Yeah. <laughs> it really was
2: awesome. Yeah. I was,
0: yeah. was like, I had a good time. And also it's kind of weird that it's, like you can get pounded by rain here, and then know that it's going to clear up pretty quickly. Like you know it's not going to last the way
2: it seems like. Like it might come and go. So I wasn't sure that it was going to go. I thought it could it's have true. just come. We just didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we actually made the opposite decision and we decided not to do the extra leg to climb Connaught
0: oh, yeah. Hill.
2: Yeah. yeah. And for us, that was a great decision as well. Nice, nice views on the way down to see over one. Beautiful views over beautiful there. Beautiful views. Very, I was surprised how crowded the trail was. Yeah. On the people, second half, between mm-hmm. the summit of Conic Hill. And where we are now.
1: <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think it's because
2: there are a lot of day hikers that oh, here that yeah. just go up and back. This is a really, really charming. Uh, it feels like a summer village on the shores of Loch Lomond. There are tons of families here, um, all age groups actually, and some seem to be here camping. And others are just here for the day. Um, others are staying in the hotel. It's really, really fun. And I appreciate that you cut the 14-mile difficult thing into two days. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's nice at the beginning of the hike, not to have back-to-back really long days.
2: Well, it's nice to not have your most challenging day be day two.
0: Like we did on sort of Yes, Mont- yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you still remember
2: that as a great day. It was a great day.
0: That's a great day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andy,
1: do right.
0: Good Sunday, different than what I expected. I don't know why. Day three was from Balma to Roar and this is 7.5 miles or about 12 kilometers. And again, if you wanted to have a big day, you could have put those two together and gone all the way to Rower Denon instead of uh, stopping where we stop. This day had some pretty pleasant lakeside hiking. When you get to Rower Denon, there's really no other facilities there, just the Rower Denon Hotel. It has a restaurant and a nice outdoor deck looking out at the lake. And so that was a pleasant place to stop. Day four is from Rower Denon to Inver Arnon. And that was a pretty big day. That was 14 and a half miles or 23 kilometers. This really had the toughest hiking of the uh, entire trip, I thought. It was really rocky, lots of routes. And you're hiking along the lakeshore. You're on a trail, but it's a pretty difficult trail in the sense that it's constantly going up and down. You're climbing over roots. You're going around boulders. It's a pretty difficult day. It's not that you can't do it. It's just that it's exhausting. So it's a pretty exhausting day, I guess I should say. Eventually you get to, I think it's about halfway, you get to Inverse Nade. You pass by a pretty impressive waterfall on the way there. And Inverse Nade has a large hotel and it's a fairly nice hotel. It's a good place to get lunch. They have a place where they allow hikers to come in and buy food, though they sort of treat you second class a little bit which I can understand. It's a very nice hotel and they don't want you getting muddy boots all over everything. But you essentially go in there, take off your shoes, walk into the bar area and you can order some food and drinks and we ordered some drinks and I think we had food already with us, but we ordered some some drinks for the uh to enjoy outside overlooking Loch Lomond. So that was a great place to stop for lunch shortly after You go by the area where there's a hidden cave that the outlaw Rob Roy, who I think was played by Liam Neeson in a movie, hid in at one point. I won't go into the full Rob Roy story, but you can look that up. That's in that area. We didn't actually see the cave. Apparently, it's more visible from the water if you're on a boat than it is from the trail. But you could see lots of small caves as we were hiking along the trails. So I got a sense of what that cave might have been like and also why it was a good place for an outlaw to hide out. At the end of that day, we reached Ben Glass Farm, which I really enjoyed. Now, this is sort of a private campground area with cabins, and we had a nice cabin there. They have a, a good little restaurant there and a little store. It's a short walk over to the Drover's Inn, which I highly recommend you do. The Drover's Inn is an old bar. They claim to be the oldest pub in Scotland. We got a T-shirt there that we gave to our son that says, Pub of the Year, 1705. So... It's been there a while. It's supposedly haunted. It was very busy when we got there because it's on a highway, so a lot of people stop in who are driving through the area as well. But uh, that was a cool spot and nice place to get a drink and hang out. And so that was day four. And at this point, we have left Loch Lomond. So once you get to Ben Glass Farm, you've left the shores of Loch Lomond. And the landscape is starting to change and starting to look more like open land with larger hills and starting to feel more like the highlands. Day five, we went from Inverarnan to Tindrum. Sorry, a little note on the name Inver. There's a lot of places that start with Inver, and Inverarnan is where Glass Farm was, or the little area where the, the Drovers Inn was, I guess. Inver, I think, means the mouth of a river, so you see the name Inver for a lot of towns or locations that are built at the mouth of a river, like Inver Arnon or Inver Snade, or even not on the trail, but Inverness, which is the city at the mouth of the Ness River, which comes out of Loch Ness. In any event, before we started our hike on day five from ben Glass Farm at Inver Arnon to Tindrum, we sat down for breakfast and talked about what we had been seeing over the last few days. I had everyone to sleep last night. <laughs> Yeah,
3: pretty well, I would say.
0: It was all right. It was a little short
2: since we're starting earlier this morning.
0: So what did you think of yesterday? I loved it.
2: I loved it. The trail was challenging, but high reward. High challenge, high reward.
0: Hey, you yeah. think it's going to be a trail next to the lake and it's going to be easy because it's like right along this lakeshore? Yeah. It's just constant up and down and constant like paying attention to every step. Boulders
3: at every step. Boulders, and roots, yeah. tree roots, you know, that kind of stuff. But It was fun. It was a fun hike and, you know, you're on the bonnie, bonnie shores of Lake Loma with my true love. And this is where you insert that I wasn't talking to Jeremy. Right. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> And if I, the, uh, if I had the rights, I'd insert the song. Yeah, that's right. Oh. Well, it probably is. in it's the public in the domain. domain. It's yeah. really in the public song. domain. No, it's a really
2: old song. It's a really old song. Yeah, I was wondering how you and Andy did. You had two, each had a full set of hiking poles. Mm-hmm. Grant and I found it quite handy to just have one, because it was a, it wasn't scrambling, but it was handy to have your hands. Oh. On some of those rocks.
0: Yeah, I never thought about it, so I think, I think two worked out pretty well. Oh,
2: that's good. It worked for me as okay. well. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, and that was a long day hiking, but we started, I don't know, nine or something in yeah. the morning, yeah. and we went until five, I think?
2: Yeah,
3: it was like was a, full, a
0: full day. day. <laughs> it was a full
2: day. We did have a leisurely lunch.
0: That's true. Now I'm trying to remember.
3: Yeah, we had at lunch the ho- at the, at at the, the hotel was midway
2: It was exactly midway. Yeah.
3: Right Can
0: you say the name of the hotel? Uh,
3: in the- in
2: something. Invernon? <laughs> no. 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 Uh, uh, the other one, uh, Inversnade or something? Oh, Inversnade. That sounds right. In- I mean, phonetically. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and then we said goodbye to La <laughs> yeah. after three days of walking line. Okay.
2: Yeah. 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 yeah.
3: And what is uh, today looking like? Road walking.
2: <laughs> oh, some, some road walking. Maybe the hitchhiking. The first. <laughs> Maybe we just hitchhike all day.
1: No.
2: <laughs> I think there's a little bit of road walking, but I think the key thing that I took away is it's a gentle, gentle uphill, but steady.
0: Yeah. That's At least
2: that, that's what I'm hoping for.
0: I was able to download the map, so in case I need to rush ahead to make it to my massage <laughs> on time,
2: which is scheduled for four thirty this afternoon, <laughs> um, I think I might be capable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say um, where we're staying tonight is excellent. We're staying at a farm. Um, no, yeah, Miller, this is a, a farm. Min- oh, this oh, is I, a but farm. this is
3: you mean last yeah. night? Yeah, last is, night.
2: Oh, tonight. Um, I looked ahead and we're, it looks like, it looks like we're staying in some cottages. There were, there were miners' crofts. So, um, just before you get into town, into Tindrum, um, there'll be a group of, it's called Clifton Cottages and they were, it was, uh, some old crofts that, that were built. Oh, like a really humble hut. Okay. That were built for miners to live in. Okay. Um. Uh, it was sort of like a, I think it was sort of like a company town you know like right. this is where you live this is you pay the rent all right. of that um, but I think they said mining was pretty big in that region for about a hundred years okay so um, but I understand the crafts have been <laughs> Yeah, I would hope <laughs> yeah and it looks like it's going to be a really good stay yeah yeah that'll be something different <music>
0: So on day five, we hiked 12 miles or 19 kilometers to Tindrum. This is the area where the Dale Geyer battlefield was. This was as you get close to Tindrum, you go past that site and there's a plaque marking it. The town of Tindrum is kind of cool. It's an old mining town, but it has kind of a mountain resort town feel, a little bit to it. It's got a few restaurants and hotels and a decent sized store where you can stock up on snack food to carry for the next few days. We stayed in the Clifton cottages and the hosts there, a nice couple were really, really wonderful. And we spent a lot of time talking with them and um, enjoyed our evening there in Tindrum. This is where we actually got massages too. There's a masseuse in Tindrum and there's actually signs as you approach Tindrum so that you can call her and set up a reservation And I have to say, Dawn had set this up in advance, and this was one of the best things that happened because my back was starting to really bother me. I have had some back issues over the years, and this massage completely resolved that issue. And for the rest of the hike, I had no back issues whatsoever. So I highly recommend that you um, take advantage of the opportunity to get a good massage in Tindrum. I believe it's at the main hotel in town that we went to, maybe just called the Tindrum Hotel, um, where she has her massage studio. All right. And then day six, we went from Tindrum to Bridge of Orkey. And this was a short day for us, six and a half miles or ten and a half kilometers. Again, this is the kind of day that you could combine and make into a longer day, but we were taking a more relaxed approach. The Bridge of Orky Hotel is a nice old hotel. The Bridge of Orkey itself is a bridge across the river that goes behind the hotel. And it's really an interesting old bridge that I believe the English built possibly during the Jacobite period to, you know, allow troops to cross that river. All right. So that was a short day. We had a, a lot of time in the afternoon to relax. And then the next day, day seven, was Bridge of Orkey to King's House. This is almost 13 miles or about 20 and a half kilometers. And as you'll hear in a minute, From Grant talking about this area. This is really the kind of landscape that I expected to see in the Scottish Highlands. And so for me, this was a real highlight of the trip, or really the beginning of the highlight section of the trip. The last three days were all similar landscape and wonderful. You spend a good portion of the day walking on an old military road through Runnock Moor, which is sort of a classic highland moor with open expanse. It's really beautiful. And as we were hiking through, we stopped for lunch by a creek and sat down and talked about our experience of the day so far. So what do you think of the moors of Scotland,
3: Grant? I love them. I love it here. Absolutely love it here. This is my favorite spot <laughs> so far. Until the next spot you lay down? Well, no, I mean, no, I just, this, is... This, I, this is what I was really looking forward to with like the moors. This,
2: he really likes it. Yeah, me too. Yeah.
0: Me too. <laughs> Like this, this is what I pictured when I thought of what the Highlands mm-hmm. is now. When we Me at. too.
3: The
2: West Highland Way isn't necessarily entirely in the
0: Highlands. No. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I didn't have any idea. I mean, maybe I should have spent five minutes looking at it. Yeah. But
2: <laughs> Instead, you're just experiencing it.
0: Yeah. That's okay too. No, it is because it's been cool to go through all the different climates mm-hmm. and all, you know, all the different zones or from. Yeah, I mean, this is
3: so much different than yesterday's walk, you know?
0: Yep. And
2: when we were along the lock as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And even along the lock, it was different. Different stretches were different. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: I would say today is much more of a high-reward, moderate-effort day. Yes. Than a... High effort, high reward day. Which yeah, is what a, I was expecting.
0: It's a generous trail. It's pretty you know, it's going up a thousand feet oh, already. It's gone up a thousand feet but you barely notice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because it's over seven miles. Yeah. Or six six and a half or whatever it is. And
0: you've got all the moors around us and then the highlands, yeah. you know, the yeah. Monroes or whatever they're called. Yeah. The Bens and
3: the Monroes. Yeah. The Bens and the Monroes, the Craigs. Corbets. Corbets.
2: You don't hear as much about the Corbets.
0: No, they must be lower in the lower country more. They will have to start adding the Kincels.
3: I like that idea.
2: (laughs) Or the Pendries. Yeah.
0: We ended day seven by reaching King's house which was a complete surprise to me because the King's House Hotel is a big, modern, recently refurbished hotel on a main highway, which I guess is why it's there. But I was expecting a small guest house like we had had throughout the trip, and it turned out to be quite a nice modern hotel with actually a fairly fancy restaurant, which we had a nice dinner at. The next day, day eight, was King's House to Kinglochleven, Levin, and that's nine miles or 14 kilometers. This day starts with a climb, and eventually you go up over Devil's Staircase, which I mentioned earlier. It's kind of a switchback area over a couple of hills. This is more going through more lands that are between Monroe's, some big glacial valleys that you can see. To me, this was a very beautiful day. And the second half of the day, though, is a, is a downhill. So once you get over the Devil's Staircase, you really have a pleasant walk the rest of the day. Downhill to Kinloch Leven, which is a town along a lock. Although I'm not positive if this is a sea lock or a lake lock. It's interesting that in Scotland they call them both locks, even when it's really a bay that's an arm of the sea or a a lake. Um, this one I think was a sea lock, but in any event, at the end of the day, we ended up in Kinloch Leven, which is a decent-sized town with several restaurants and quite a few homes probably the biggest town we had seen along the hike to that point. We stayed in a guest house. It was a little bit out of the main part of town. We enjoyed our stay there. And then the last day, day nine, we went from Kinloch Levin to Fort William. Before we started out that day, we sat down at breakfast at our guest house and talked about our expectations for the last day of the hike. So what are we expecting for the last day? Oh, cool. An easy uh, hike. An easy hike. hike. A helicopter ride? <laughs> a helicopter ride. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Does that
3: count? You do that? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good hike. Oh, good. We go... I think we have
2: perfect weather.
3: Yeah, perfect weather. We go like a thousand feet up right away. That's no, pretty much...
2: A steady down?
3: It's a pretty it's down.
0: flat and kind of like slight down. Yeah. 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 Is it going to be more of the? Like Highland Moors
1: stuff, do we think? in the last
3: mm-hmm. couple of days. I think we're kind of moving into the... I don't think so. ...more coastal region. Yeah. We live return. Mm-hmm.
2: I know that we are going to be going through some forestry land. <laughs> okay. and, and that's something I've read on reviews, is that um, it can be a bit of a surprise coming into Fort William and seeing, like, timber...
0: Right, right. It's a big timber town, lumber lumber industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I
3: think you were saying this yesterday, the last two days have been pretty phenomenal. Um, last two days have been the best.
0: I think for me that's true, but only because it's sort of what I had expectations of seeing. Yeah. When I came here thinking I was going to see these high moorlands with uh, heather and wide-open spaces, it peaks in the distance, and that's yeah. what we had for the last two days. Now,
3: it's still just remarkable to me how much just open space there is on those moors. Yeah. We look in every direction, and there's nothing. To put it kind of in a, I don't know, this is a negative light, but it sort of shows that they're kind of useless for anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think mean, it'd be hard to, look, but it's certainly hard to build on them because it's a little boggy, you know.
2: It's hard to grow anything.
3: Hard to grow anything. But they don't even have sheep out there. Mm-hmm. But, but not really useless,
2: that. right? I mean, it's not where no, they they're, they,
3: they're, they got heat, and that's true. And that's good true. As a Natural habit. Let's you know? not let's not happens. say anything is useless if it relates to the industry. I just are
0: reading from like a human perspective, which is a good thing, right? To have all these spaces that mm-hmm. aren't going to be developed. Mm-hmm.
3: I just don't think there's anything quite like that that I've seen. I mean, I'm not as traveled as you are, but I can't think of any place we've been where you can look to that far and just see yeah, absolutely not like Well because the
2: views are just so expansive.
3: Yeah, that's <laughs> true. You know, you
2: know, we you
3: go can... hiking in the in Pacific Northwest, it's like there's lots of trees. Mm-hmm. And then there's water or something. But I was going to say that the photos,
0: it's really hard to capture and Yeah. That, like, you look at the photo, and it just looks like grassy field.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it looks like yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. All
1: right, well, I'm looking forward to today. Me too.
0: I really enjoyed this last day of hiking. Again, the landscape is just mind-blowing. It does start to change, but you start out with a significant incline to climb out of the area where Kinloch Levin is, and you end up, in this huge valley that's called Larigmore. And this was just another amazing highlight. It's a very beautiful valley. It's a long valley. And it has some ruined farmhouses in it that are kind of, that add to the ambiance. Uh, it's a beautiful hike, that part of the day. And eventually you work your way into view of Ben Nevis, which is the highest mountain in all of Great Britain. This day, it was covered in clouds, which I think as Neil pointed out in our discussion is not atypical, or I should say is most common. It is a rare day, I think, when you have a clear view of the summit of Ben Nevis. Uh, Andy and I and Dawn and Grant sort of split up this day and had different paces. Dawn and Grant were ahead of us. And Andy and I, as we were starting to make our way down toward Fort William, the city at the end of the hike, saw a sign for something called Dun deerdale which is a small side trip of maybe a half a mile each way to what used to be a very ancient fort on top of a hill. You really can't see much of the fort left, except that you can see that something had been built by humans there. But it was really a cool view. And we went up there and the view overlooking the area that Fort William is in and of Ben Nevis right in front of you is really impressive. So I actually enjoyed that side trip and I would recommend it if you're not too exhausted. It's not too hard. It's just before you make the downhill toward Fort William. The hike ends by walking through Fort William, which is a decent-sized city, particularly in comparison to everything you've been through along the way. It's definitely the largest city you've seen since you left Milgay. Fort William is really the epicenter of mountaineering in Scotland, and it has been for a long time. It has the sort of feel of a mountain resort town. There's a great main street, which you walk down to finish the hike. And it has lots of bars and restaurants and shops. And I really enjoyed coming into Fort William. It's a great place to finish up a trip like this and then go out to a nice dinner. When you finish the hike, there's a plaque marking the end. And there's also the statue of a man sitting on a bench rubbing his sore feet from the long walk, which is a great place to take a photo of your own exhausted self with sore feet at the finish of the hike. So there you have it. That is the West Highland Way. One thing I wanted to mention about accommodations before I forget is that plenty of people camp along this route, and you could do that. There is plenty of camping near all of the places that I mentioned that we stopped. And so almost anywhere along the route, you could camp and you could still go to restaurants and you could still stock up in the stores and, and do all of that, but um, spend a lot less money and have a little bit different experience um, sleeping out. As I mentioned, the midges could be a problem for sure in the summer months. I would consider it if you're someone on a budget uh, or if you're just someone who prefers that. And so I didn't go through all the details about it, but there are plenty of places to camp. Generally, the camping is in what I will call sort of semi-organized campgrounds. It's not wild camping because you're not in a wild place, but it's also not really official campgrounds. You don't pay anything from what I can tell. There are essentially flat areas sometimes with minor facilities like a picnic table. There are a few places where you would pay to stay, like in Ben Glass Farm. But I do think camping is a viable option for a lot of people. We saw a lot of young people camping along the route, but we also saw some families camping along the route. So uh, I think it's a great option as well. I'll just mention that Andy and I continued our trip in Scotland after the hike, and we went to the Isle of Skye, which is just fantastic and I recommend. We went to Inverness and Loch Ness, and then we went to Edinburgh, all of which I really enjoyed. Inverness is the biggest city in the Highlands and is, I think, a fantastic city and worth seeing. And Edinburgh, I think, is also an amazing city, and it's an amazing international city. So there's a lot to see and a lot to do in Scotland, so make a big trip of it and see more of the country if you haven't been there before. So there you have it. That is the West Highland Way. I hope you've stuck with me through this episode. I know it's been a gigantic episode, but I I hope you found it worth it. I certainly enjoyed learning about Scotland, visiting Scotland, and hiking the West Highland Way. And I hope that I have inspired you, and I hope that Neil has helped me to inspire you to hike the West Highland Way. And if you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. Or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we go, I want to remind you about our sponsor, Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore makes delicious vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals that pack in plenty of calories, are made with quality ingredients, and are packaged in boil in a bag packaging. So, all you need to do is put in hot water, stir, and let it sit for 10 minutes, and your dinner is ready. As I said before, if you've listened to this show, you don't need to be a vegetarian or a vegan to enjoy these meals. They're delicious for anyone. In October, I went hiking on a solo trip in Yosemite National Park. And of course I brought outdoor herbivore meals with me. I had the naked freckled burrito, which I had had one time before, but I hadn't had in a while. And I have to say, I'm hooked. I will be having that one again. It's really delicious. If you bring tortillas like I do for lunch anyway, you can use those tortillas as well to make some burritos with the burrito mix. And it comes with some Cholula sauce, which I love. And I also had my favorite meal, the chickpea sesame zetti, which is one I bring on practically every backpacking trip. So to get your discount on outdoor herbivore backpacking meals, enter the discount code TWH10P, trails worth hiking 10%, TWH10P at outdoorherbivore.com. By the way, Outdoor Herbivore ships anywhere in the world, so even if you are not based here in the United States, Outdoor Herbivore meals are available for you to order. Thanks again to Outdoor Herbivore for sponsoring the show. Let's talk about upcoming episodes. I've got a couple episodes I want to mention. First, there's going to be a special episode on nature and landscape photography, and I'm excited about this special episode because it will give you lots of great information for how to get the best shots when you're outdoors and you're carrying around your cell phone. This is something that, for a long time, I never spent much time thinking about. But after doing the interview for this episode and thinking about it, it really helped me get some great shots on the Yosemite trip I did in October. So I'm excited to bring you that episode soon. But let me also tell you about the next hike that we'll cover on the show. If none of the trails we've covered on this show so far are challenging enough for you, we've got an episode coming for you. This trail covers 400 miles of rough and wild terrain, some of which is trail, but other parts of which are just a route that only aspire to be a trail. This trail covers a vast array of different features, including mountaintops, deep redwood forest, canyons, gorges, river crossings, grasslands, oak savanna, and even beaches. For the vast majority of this hike, you'll see almost no one, despite that you are hiking between two major metropolitan areas in the most populated state of the United States. Our next adventure is on the Condor Trail in the Los Padres National Forest in California. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, please reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.